developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Welcome to Haunted Talks, the official podcast of The Haunted Walk, offering ghost tours and paranormal adventures in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto, Ontario, and online experiences to anyone in this mortal realm. My name is Jim Dean. I am the creative director, and we thank you for joining us for this episode. This is the conclusion of our three-part mini-series of Edward Bueller Lytton's The Haunted and the Haunters. If you've not listened to parts one and two yet, I would strongly suggest that you start there. In part two, our unnamed protagonist read the contents of two letters that he and his servant found in one of the bedrooms in the attic. The letters hinted at a dark secret between a pair of lovers, and that the young man was lost at sea. As the two men try to settle down for sleep, the dog begins growling, and the servant suddenly explodes out of his bedroom, yelling, Run! It's after me! And he doesn't stop until he's gone right out the front door. This leaves our protagonist and his dog alone in the house. Soon the temperature in the room suddenly drops and a dark shadow with hints of a human form and serpent-like eyes materializes. The candles in the room begin to slowly die until the moonlight becomes the only source of illumination. In the gloom, he sees a ghostly hand reach up and take the letters before vanishing. A chair moves across the room on its own and in it, the ghostly presence of a young woman emerges from the dark. She's looking towards the door, as if waiting. By the closed door, the shape of a young man materializes. He's wearing clothes from the previous century, and both seem to have blood on their clothing. From the closet emerges the form of an old woman, holding the letters that had recently been taken. As she reads them, Over her shoulder appears the image of a pale, bloated man with seaweed tangled in his hair. At her feet lay a corpse, and beside the corpse, a child cowered. The protagonist 
is engulfed by the dark shadow as he feels unseen hands upon him. He is certain that the shadow has a will, and an evil one at that. As we conclude the story, we will hear the fallout from this terrifying night for all three participants and unravel the secrets of this mysterious house. There is a particularly interesting section where the protagonist shares his philosophy about ghosts, which reflects the rising interest in spiritualism at the time Bulward-Lytton was writing the story, in 1859. He discusses the paranormal as part of nature we are yet to understand, not a phenomenon that stands outside of the natural world. It is an idea I find particularly appealing. And now, for the conclusion of The Haunted and the Haunters. But before we get to that, have you ever thought about how fun it must be to get paid to tell ghost stories as a tour guide for The Haunted Walk? Or do you know someone who's a great storyteller, a lover of history, and all things dark and macabre? Well, we have started hiring for our 2023 season. And we would love for you or anyone you know who you think would make a great tour guide to apply. The application can be done on our website, hauntedwalk.com slash jobs, and it takes maybe a minute or two to fill out the application, and then you'll go through our hiring process, which is designed to be fun, as well as to see your storytelling chops. There is an advantage to those who apply earlier in the year, so if you think this is something you might enjoy, or you know someone else who might enjoy working with us, please apply as soon as possible. And again, the link for that is hauntedwalk.com slash jobs. We have made it through January, often the most difficult month of the winter. Spring is starting to loom on the horizon, and our tours have resumed every weekend in Kingston, Ottawa, and Toronto. And we do have a special weekend of investigations at the SDG Cornwall Jail on February 10th and 11th. So if you're looking for a little pre-Valentine's Day fun, that is a great opportunity to check out a great haunted and historical property in Eastern Ontario. Speaking of Valentine's Day, if you're spending the night in, you may want to try our Haunting at Home online paranormal adventure, which challenges you to conduct a series of experiments with your boo to see if your home may be haunted. Information on our ghost tours, paranormal investigations, and the haunting at home can all be found on our website, hauntedwalk.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Haunted Walk for the latest breaking news. And if you're enjoying our episodes, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us. And we would be honored if you recommend the show to anyone you know who loves things that go bump in the night. As the gloom receded, the shadow was now wholly gone. 
Slowly, as if it had been withdrawn, the flame grew again in the candles on the table, and again into the fuel in the grate. The whole room came once more, calmly, healthfully, into sight. The two doors were still closed, the door communicating with the servant's room still locked. In the corner of the wall into which he had so conclusively put himself lay the dog. I called to him. No movement. I approached. The animal was dead. His eyes protruded. His tongue out of his mouth. The froth gathered around his jaw. I took him in my arms. I brought him to the fire. I felt acute grief for the loss of my poor favorite, acute self-reproach, I accused myself of his death. I imagined he had died of fright. But what was my surprise on finding that his neck was actually broken? Had this been done in the dark? Must it have not been by a human hand as mine? Must there not have been human agency all while in that room? good cause to suspect it. I cannot tell you. I cannot do more than state the fact fairly, and the listener may draw their own inference. Another surprising circumstance. My watch was restored to the table from which it had been so mysteriously withdrawn, but it had stopped at the very moment it was withdrawn. Nor, despite all the skill of the watchmaker, has it ever gone since. That is, it will go in a strange, erratic way for a few hours, and then come to a dead stop. It is worthless. Nothing more chanced for the rest of the night, nor indeed had I long to wait before the dawn broke, nor till it was broad daylight did I quit the haunted house. Before I did so, I revisited the little blind room in which my servant and myself had been for a time imprisoned. I had a strong impression, for which I could not account, that from that room had originated the mechanism of the phenomena, if I may use the term, which has been experienced in my chamber. And although I entered it now, in the clear of day, with the sun peering through the filmy window, I still felt, as I stood on its floors, the creep of horror, which I had first experienced the night before, and which had been so aggravated by what had passed in my own chamber. I could not, indeed, bear to stay more than half a minute within those walls. I descended the stairs, and again I heard the footfall before me. And when I opened the street, I thought I could distinguish a very low laugh. (laughs) I gained my own home, expecting to find my runaway servant there, but he had not presented himself, nor did I hear more of him for three days, when I received a letter from him, dated from Liverpool, to this effect. Honored sir, I humbly entreat your pardon, though I can scarcely hope that you will think I deserve it, unless, which heaven forbid, you saw what I did. I feel that it will be years before I can recover myself, And as to being fit for service, it is out of the question. I am therefore going to my brother-in-law at Melbourne. The ship sails tomorrow. 
Perhaps the long voyage may set me up. I do know nothing now but start and tremble and fancy it is behind me. I humbly beg you, honoured sir, to order my clothes and whatever wages are due to me to be sent to my mother's at Walworth. John knows her address. The letter ended with additional apologies, somewhat incoherent, and explanatory details as to the effects that had been under the writer's charge. This flight may perhaps warrant a suspicion that the man wished to go to Australia and had been somehow or other fraudulently mixed up with the events of that night. I say nothing in refutation of that conjecture. Rather, I suggest it as one that would seem to many persons the most probable solution of the improbable occurrences. My belief in my own theory remained unshaken. I returned in the evening to the house to bring away in a hack cab the things that I had left there with my poor dog's body. In this task, I was not disturbed, nor did any incident worth note befall me, except that still, on ascending and descending the stairs, I heard the same footfall in advance. On leaving the house, I went to Mr. J's. He was at home. I returned him the keys, told him that my curiosity was sufficiently gratified, and was about to relate quickly what had passed when he stopped me and said, though with much politeness, that he had no longer any interest in a mystery which none had ever solved. I determined at least to tell him of the two letters I had read, as well of the extraordinary manner in which they had disappeared. I then inquired if he thought they had been addressed to the woman who had died in the house, and if there was anything in her early history which could possibly confirm the dark suspicions to which the letters gave rise. Mr. J seemed startled. After music a few moments, answered, I am but little acquainted with the woman's earlier history, except as I told you that her family were known to mine. But you revive some vague reminiscence to her prejudice. I will make inquiries and inform you of the result. Still, even if we could admit the popular superstition that a person who had been either the perpetrator or the victim of dark crimes in life could revisit as a restless spirit, the scene in which those crimes had been committed, I should observe that the house was infested by strange sights and sounds before the old woman died. You smile. What would you say? I responded, I would say this, that I am convinced if we could get to the bottom of these mysteries, we should find a living human agency. What? You believe... It is all imposture? For what reason? Not an imposture, I responded, in the ordinary sense of the word. If suddenly I were to sink into a deep sleep from which you could not awaken me, but in that sleep could answer questions with accuracy, which I could not pretend to when awake, tell you what money you had in your pocket, nay, describe your very thoughts, it is not necessarily an imposture any more than it is necessarily supernatural. I should be unconsciously to myself under a mesmeric influence conveyed to me 
from a distance by a human being who had acquired power over me by some previous rapport. He studied me. But if a mesmerizer could so affect another living being, can you suppose that a mesmerizer could also affect inanimate objects? Move chairs? Open and shut doors? I paused a moment before responding. Or impress our senses with the belief in such effects? We never have been in rapport with the person acting on us. No, what is commonly called mesmerism could not do this. But there may be a power akin to mesmerism, or superior to it, the power that in the old days we called magic. That such a power may extend to all inanimate objects of matter. I do not say, but if so, it would not be against nature. It would be a rare power in nature, which might be given to constitutions with certain peculiarities and cultivated by practice to an extraordinary degree. That such power might extend over the dead, that is, over certain thoughts and memories the dead may still retain, and compel not that which ought to be properly called the soul, and which is far beyond human reach, but rather a phantom of what had been most earth-stained on earth, to make itself apparent to our senses, is a very ancient, though obsolete, theory upon which I will hazard no opinion. But I do not conceive the power would be supernatural. Let me illustrate what I mean from an experiment which Paracelsus describes as not difficult, in which the author of The Curiosities of Literature cites as credible. A flower perishes. You burn it. Whatever the elements of that flower, while it lived, are gone, dispersed. You can never discover nor recollect them. But you can, by chemistry, out of the burned dust of that flower, raise a spectrum of the flower, just as it seemed in life. It may be the same with the human being, that the soul has much escaped you as the essence or elements of the flower. Still, you may make a spectrum out of it. And this phantom, though in the popular superstition is held to be the soul of the departed, must not be confounded with the true soul. It is but the phantom of the dead form. Hence, like the best attested stories of ghosts or spirits, the thing that most strikes us is the absence of what we hold to be the soul, that is, of superior emancipated intelligence. These apparitions come for little or no object. They seldom speak when they do come. If they speak, they utter no ideas above those of an ordinary person on earth. American spirit seers have published volumes of communications in prose and verse which they assert to be given in the names of the most illustrious dead. Shakespeare, Bacon, heaven knows who. Those communications, taking the best and certainly not a wit of higher order than would be communications from a living person of fair talent and education, they're wondrously inferior to what Bacon, Shakespeare, and Plato said and wrote when on earth. Nor, what is more noticeable, do they even contain an idea that what is not on the earth before. 
wonderful, therefore, as such phenomena may be, granting them to be truthful, I see that philosophy may question nothing that is incumbent on philosophy to deny, namely, nothing supernatural. There are but ideas conveyed, somehow or another, we have yet to discover the means, from one mortal brain to another. Whether in so doing, tables walk of their own accord, or fiend-like shapes appear in a magic circle, or bodiless hands rise and remove material objects, or a thing of darkness, such as presented itself to me, frees our blood. Still am I persuaded that these are but agencies conveyed, as if by electric wires, to my brain from the brain of another. In some constitutions, there is a natural chemistry, and those constitutions may produce chemic wonders. In others, a natural fluid, call it electricity, and these may produce electric wonders. But the wonders differ from normal science in this. They are alike objectless, purposeless, puerile, and frivolous. They lead on to no grand results, and therefore the world does not heed, and true sages have not cultivated them. Mature I am that all I have saw or heard, a man, human myself, was the remote originator, and I believe unconsciously to himself as to the exact effects produced. For this reason, no two persons, you say, have ever told you that they experienced the exact same thing. Well, observe, no two persons ever experience exactly the same dream. If this were an ordinary imposture, the machinery would be arranged for results that would but little vary. If it were a supernatural agency permitted by the Almighty, it would surely be for some definitive end. These phenomena belong to neither class. My persuasion is that they originate in some brain now far distant. That that brain had no distinct volition in anything that occurred. What does occur reflects but its devious, multi, ever-shifting, half-formed thoughts. In short, that it has been but the dreams of such a brain put into action and invested with semi-substance. That this brain is of immense power, that it can set matters into movement, that it is malignant and destructive, I believe. Some material force must have killed my dog. The same force might for I ought to know, have sufficed to kill myself, had I been subjugated by terror as the dog, had my intellect or my spirit given me no countervailing resistance in my will. It killed your dog, Mr. J. responded. That is fearful. Indeed, it is strange that no animal can be adduced to state in that house, not even a cat. Bats and mice are never found in it. The instincts of the brute creation detect influences deadly to their presence, I replied. Man's reason has a sense less subtle, because it has a resisting power more supreme. But enough. Do you comprehend my theory? Yes, Mr. J responded, though imperfectly. And I accept any theory, however odd, 
rather than embrace at once the notion of ghosts and hobgoblins who imbibed in our nurseries. Still, to my unfortunate house, the evil is the same. What on earth can I do with the house? I will tell you what I would do. I am convinced from my own internal feelings that the small unfurnished room at the right angles to the door of the bedroom, which I occupied, forms a starting point or receptacle for the influences which haunt the house. And I strongly advise you to have the walls opened, the floor removed, nay, the whole room pulled down. I observed that it is detached from the body of the house, built over the small backyard, and could be removed without injury to the rest of the building. And you think if I did that, you would cut the telegraph wires. Try it. I am so persuaded that I am right that I will pay half the expenses if you allow me to direct the observations. Nay, I am well able to afford the cost, but for the rest, allow me to write you. After about ten days, I received a letter from Mr. J telling me that he had visited the house since I had seen him. He had found the two letters I had described were placed in the drawer from which I had taken them. He had read them with the misgivings like my own, that he had instituted a cautious inquiry about the woman to whom I rightfully conjectured they had been written. It seemed that 36 years ago, a year before the date of the letters, she had married, against the wish of her relations, an American of very suspicious character. In fact, he was generally believed to have been a pirate. She herself was the daughter of very respectable tradespeople and had served in the capacity of a nursery governess before her marriage. She had a brother, a widower, who was considered wealthy and whom had one child of about six years old. A month after the marriage, the body of this brother was found in the Thames, near London Bridge, There seemed some marks of violence about his throat, but they were not deemed sufficient to warrant the inquest in any other verdict than that of found drowned. The American and his wife took charge of the little boy, the deceased brother, having by his will left his sister the guardian of his only child, and in event of the child's death, the sister inherited. The child died, about six months afterwards. It was supposed to have been neglected and ill-treated. The neighbors disposed to have heard it shriek all night long. The surgeon who examined it after death said that it was emaciated, as if from want of nourishment, and the body was covered with bruises. It seemed that one winter night the child had sought to escape, crept out into the backyard, tried to scale the wall, fallen back exhausted and been found that morning on the stones in a dying state. But though there was some evidence of cruelty, there was none of murder, and the aunt and her husband alleged exceeding stubbornness and perversity of the child who was declared to be a half-wit. Be that as it may, at the orphan's death, the aunt inherited her brother's fortune. Before the first wedded year was out, the American quitted England abruptly and never returned to it. 
he obtained a sailing vessel, which was lost in the Atlantic two years afterwards. The widow was left in affluence, but reverses of various kinds had befallen her. A bank broke, an investment failed. She went into business and became insolvent. Then she entered into service, sinking lower and lower, from housekeeper down to maid of all work, never long retaining a place, though nothing decided against her character was ever alleged. She was considered sober, honest, and peculiarly quiet in her ways. And so she had dropped into the workhouse, from which Mr. J had taken her to be placed in charge of the very house which she had rented as mistress in the first year of her wedded life. Mr. J added that he had passed an hour alone in the unfinished room, which I had urged him to destroy, and that his impressions of dread while there were so great, though he had never heard or seen anything, that he was eager to have the walls bared and the floors removed as I suggested. He had engaged persons for the work and would commence any day I would name. The day was accordingly fixed. I repaired to the haunted house. We went into the blind, dreary room, took up the skirting and then the floors. Under the rafters, covered with rubbish, we found a trap door, quite large enough to admit a man. It was closely nailed down with clamps and rivets of iron. On removing these, we descended into a room below, the existence of which had never been suspected. In this room, there had been a window and a flue, but they had been bricked over, evidently, for many years. By the help of candles, we examined this place. It still retained some moldering furniture, three chairs, an oak settle, a table, all of the fashion of about 80 years ago. There was a chest of drawers against the wall, in which we found, half-rotted away, old-fashioned articles of a man's dress, such as might have been worn 80 or 100 years ago by a gentleman of some rank. Costly steel buckles and buttons, like those yet worn in court dresses, a handsome court sword, in a waistcoat which had once been rich with gold lace, which was now blackened and foul with damp, we found five guineas, a few silver coins, and an ivory ticket, probably for some place of entertainment long since past. But our main discovery was in a kind of iron safe fixed to the wall, the lock of which it cost us much trouble to get picked. In the safe were three shelves and two small drawers. Ranged on the shelves were several small bottles of crystal hermetically stopped. They contained colorless, volatile essences, of the nature of which I shall only say they were not poisons. Phosphor and ammonia entered into some of them. There were also some very curious glass tubes and a small pointed rod of iron with a large lump of rock crystal and another of amber, also a lodestone of great power. In one of the drawers, we found a miniature portrait set in gold and retaining the freshness of its color most remarkably, considering the length of time it had probably been there. 
The portrait was that of a man who might be somewhat advanced in middle life, perhaps 47 or 48. It was a remarkable face, a most impressive face. If you could fancy some mighty serpent transformed into a man, preserving in the human lineaments the old serpent type, you would have a better idea of that countenance than long descriptions can convey. The width and flatness of the frontal, the tapering elegance and contour disguising the strength of its deadly jaw, the long, large, terrible eye glittering and green as the emerald, and withal a certain ruthless calm, as if it had come from the consciousness of an immense power. Mechanically, I turned around the miniature to examine the back of it, and on the back was engraved a pentacle. In the middle of the pentacle, a ladder, and the third step of the ladder was formed the date 1765. Examining still more minutely, I detected a spring. This, on being pressed, opened the back of the miniature as a lid. With inside, the lid was engraved, Mariana, to thee, be faithful in life and in death, to... Here follows a name I will not mention, but it was not unfamiliar to me. I had heard it spoken of by old men in my childhood, as the name borne by a dazzling charlatan who had made a great sensation in London for a year or so, and had fled the country on the charge of double murder within his own house, that of his mistress and his rival. I said nothing of this to Mr. J, to whom I reluctantly, I resigned the miniature. We found no difficulty in opening the first drawer within the iron safe. We found great difficulty opening the second. It was not locked, but it resisted all efforts till we inserted in the chinks the edge of a chisel. When we had thus drawn it forth, we found a singular apparatus in the nicest order. Upon a small, thin book, or rather, tablet, was placed a saucer of crystal. The saucer was filled with a clear liquid. On that clear liquid floated a kind of compass, with the needle shifting rapidly around. But instead of the usual points of the compass were seven strange characters, not very unlike those used by astrologers to denote the planets. A peculiar, but not strong nor displeasing odor came from this drawer, which was lined with a wood that we afterwards discovered to be hazel. Whatever the cause of this odor, it produced a material effect on the nerves. We all felt it, even the two workmen who were in the room. A creeping, tingling sensation from the tips of the fingers to the roots of the hair. Impatient to examine the tablet, I removed the saucer. As I did so, the needle of the compass went round and round with exceeding swiftness, and I felt a shock that ran through my whole frame so that I dropped the saucer on the floor. The liquid was spilled, the saucer broken. The compass rolled to the end of the room, and at that instant, the walls shook to and fro, as if a giant had swayed and rocked them. 
The two workmen were so frightened that they ran up the ladder by which they had descended from the trap door. But seeing that nothing more happened, they were easily induced to return. Meanwhile, I had opened the tablet. It was bound in plain red leather, with a silver clasp. It contained but one sheet on thick volume, and on that sheet were inscribed with a double pentacle words in old monkish Latin, which are literally to be translated thus. On all that it can reach within these walls, sentient or inanimate, living or dead, as moves the needle, so work my will. Accursed be this house, and restless be the dwellers therein. We found no more. Mr. J burned the tablet and its anthema. He raised the foundations of that part of the building containing the secret room with the chamber over it. He had then the courage to inhabit the house himself for a month, and a quieter, better-conditioned house could not be found in all of London. Subsequently, he led it to his advantage, and his tenant had no complaints. Thank you for joining us for this special three-part miniseries on Edward Bueller Lytton's The Haunted and The Haunters. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did presenting it to you. For information on our ghost tours, paranormal investigations, and the haunting at home, please visit our website, which is hauntedwalk.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you have a moment to leave us a five-star review, wherever you're listening, it is very helpful to us and to the show. And we always look forward to reading those reviews. As always, a special thanks to our Haunted Talks team, including Michelle Dennis, our outstanding audio editor. Until we meet again, sweet dreams. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.